If I might have your attention, I'm going to invite you to make your way back to your seat. And uh, it's our custom at Redeemer that we stand as uh, the scriptures are read. So we're going to ask you to give reverence to God's word. And as uh, Benji just remarked a moment ago, um, there's so many of you that are new with us this morning, and we are thrilled that you are with us and uh, hope that Redeemer gives you a warm and um, uh, uh, wonderful welcome to everything that's happening here at Redeemer. Uh, this morning, uh, the lectionary turns our attention to John's account of the resurrection, verses 1 through 18. You can find those words printed in your bulletin. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. Oh, it was still dark, and saw that the tomb, the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. And Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, "'Woman, why are you weeping?' She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being the resurrected one who speaks from the grave and from a throne of life. Would you, by your Spirit, reign over us and in us this day, filling our hearts and minds with the joy and life that comes in the resurrection. It is in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We sometimes forget that it's the resurrection that most clearly frames what is uh, unique about Christianity, what is uh, uh, essential to it, that it's the historicity of this event that um, makes Christianity unique among all of the religions of the world. Christianity at its most fundamental level is not peddling divine truths or timeless principles. At its essence, it's not about trying to get people to do certain things and follow certain codes, but it's about the news that issues forth 
from this event. So significant is this event, the resurrection, that if it did not happen, then Christianity falls. In fact, the Apostle Paul will say that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then we are still in our sins, and of all men, most to be pitied. So significant is this event. But the history of it is not its only unique point. It's what undergirds it and attaches to it. Again, this isn't just a miracle, isolated, even grand. But it's what this miracle points to. It's the significance that that attaches to it. If it really happened, it signals God's victory over sin, death, the devil, for all of those who put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. When Christ comes out of the grave as a resurrected, glorious King, He comes bringing all of creation with Him. The Apostle Paul will say that He is the first fruits of a new creation. What's begun in Him will catch the entire cosmos up with Him. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God is turning back the tide of darkness, the presence of evil, the burden and guilt and power of sin. Sadly, though, it's not uncommon for us to hear the news of the resurrection and greet it with so much of a shrug of our shoulders. We've, we've been through a lot of Easter Sundays. Sometimes we wonder, does its relevance still press upon my heart? Maybe it's because our Christianity has yet to cost us very much. That's why, in some strange way, I'm thankful for the testimony of those Christians in the Middle East those Christians in North Korea, those Christians in Kenya and, and Nigeria and elsewhere who are standing up in powerful and tremendous ways, reminding us of the significance of our faith and the testimony of, of the gospel. I fear that so often we greet the words of the resurrection like, Will Willimon, a pastor, once said. He said that we're the sort of folk who like to believe that you can have resurrection and still have the world as it was yesterday. He compares and contrasts it to the news and the um, excitement and enthusiasm we attach when um, we announce that there is a new child in the womb. Think about what happens when you announce that you're pregnant. I mean, we tell everyone that we know we, we might even add on to our house or move houses. We're going to sock money away and make all kinds of preparations. But then he says, but when life comes back from the grave, we say to ourselves, well, that's an interesting headline. That's an interesting piece of trivia found on page 13 of the Metro section. Now, what's for breakfast? I mean, as we think about Easter already, we're... Wondering about how's that ham cooking in the oven, right? And where are we going to hide the Easter eggs? And who's coming for Easter dinner? The, the truth is that the resurrection rests too inconsequentially upon our hearts and minds. It hasn't gripped us as it should. It hasn't gripped us as God intends for it to do so. But again, by the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, humanity's long captivity to darkness, sin, and death, well, has been undone. This isn't just a miracle. It's the cosmic turning point in all of history. 
because of the resurrection, we're to look at everything in life, everything at life differently. Not from the vantage point of death, but from the vantage point of life. And so as we think about this event, if it's that important, it has to be true. How foolish would it be for us to believe in something that's not true, that is freighted with that much significance? And that's why it's important for us to note the historicity of the resurrection. It's become fashionable today for us to think that we can unhinge the world of the Bible from the present-day practice of Christianity, as if we don't want to be you know, burdened with all of these ancient texts, all of these foreign practices, all of these difficult passages. And yet, when we try to unhinge our practiced Christianity from the world of the New Testament, it is no longer sustainable. One New Testament scholar puts it well. If Christianity is not rooted in the things that actually happened in first century Palestine, we might as well be Buddhist or Marxist or most anything else. If Jesus never existed or if He is quite different from what we read about in the Gospels and the church's worship affirms, then we are indeed living in cloud cuckoo land. I'm not exactly sure where cloud cuckoo land is, but I don't think it's good. don't think it's good. And so it's important for us to recognize the historical basis of our faith, and there's no historical event more significant for Christianity, then this one, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, no event is freighted with more significant than this resurrection. Again, as Paul said, without it, Christianity falls. With it, Christianity flourishes. And what's so interesting about the resurrection is that nobody was looking for it. It really is a kind of -of out-of-the-box thought for everybody associated with the events surrounding Jesus' death. The Jewish leadership weren't looking for it. They certainly didn't desire it. The disciples weren't expecting it. The Greeks and the Romans, they wouldn't have imagined it, nor would the disciples have imagined it. And, and, and it's important for us to realize this, is, this was a completely new thought, the resurrection. First of all, the Jewish leadership... The last thing they wanted is Jesus coming back from the dead. They were seeking to stamp Jesus and this sect that had arisen around him out. That's why they led him to the to the crucifixion. They knew the best way to contain this sect was to put away their leader. And they had heard the rumors about the idea of a resurrection. They actually took those things seriously, unlike the disciples. And so what did they do? They set guard at Jesus' tomb. What's interesting is that when the uh, empty tomb, the stories of the empty tomb began to emerge and the resurrection, when those stories began to emerge, if they were untrue, all of all the Jewish leadership would have had to have done is produce the body. Or if the tomb wasn't empty, they, they could have just gone to the tomb. They could have um, brought a body, they could have um, brought the tomb, and yet because they could not... They had to embrace the empty tomb theory. It's interesting that uh, the Jewish leadership um, could have easily debunked the claims of the disciples if they had had a body and there was an empty tomb. And they're the ones who adopt the stolen body theory. 
in Matthew 28, they're the ones who say, tell the people that his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And this stolen body theory, it persists even unto today. In the second century, we have a debate recorded of a Jewish leader and a Christian leader. And the, the reason that is given um, for the Jews' unbelief is the stolen body. But what's interesting about that, it makes a larger point. It makes this larger point. The Jewish leadership had no interest in perpetuating Jesus' ministry, but when it comes to the historicity of the empty tomb, it's undeniable. You know, the the Jewish leadership had to accept that the tomb was empty and they didn't have a body. And so, of course, they didn't believe in the resurrection, but here's the bigger point. They admitted to the empty tomb. It's no small concession. But think about this too. The, the disciples, they weren't expecting resurrection. That was the last thing in their mind. Despite what Jesus had said on many times that He would go into the grave and He would come forth from the grave, the disciples were not looking or expecting resurrection. Within Judaism, there was no well-developed um, uh, concept for the resurrection in the middle of history. There was an idea of a resurrection at the end of the history when God would restore all things when God would um, restore the prominence of Israel among all of the nations. There was that thought, but not in the middle of history, not now. And so when someone died, you would mourn him, you would remember her, you would grieve. And that's what we see the disciples doing. In fact, just the women doing this. John focuses on Mary, but in verse 2, with the we that John uses there, we're reminded that there were others, Matthew, Mark, and Luke note, other women, maybe as many as four, they're heading to the tomb early in the morning that first day of the week to do what? To grieve, to mourn, to attend to the body. When Mary gets there, she immediately notices that the stone had been rolled away and the tomb is empty. But But interestingly, what does she do? She doesn't say, oh, Jesus must be raised from the dead. Where is He? No. Her first thought is they've taken the body. Someone has stolen the body. Where have they laid Him? She runs back to greet the disciples, finding Peter and and finding John. She tells them that they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid Him. Indeed, she wasn't looking for the resurrection. It was completely unexpected, completely undesired. And sometimes people will suggest that the resurrection has been dreamed up, imagined. But even that idea falls short. The Greeks and the Romans wouldn't invented the resurrection. After all, the idea of returning to the body would have been repugnant to them. When you die, that, that's the goal of life, to escape the prison of the body. That's why um, the philosophers on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, when Paul's preaching in Athens, that's why they mocked Paul, because he was proclaiming the idea of resurrection. The, the Greeks and the Romans wouldn't have invented the idea of the resurrection. And truth be told, the disciples wouldn't have dreamed this up either. Why would they have dreamed it up? If they were going to dream it up, surely they would have crafted a better scenario, a better story, a better way of presenting the details 
One of those details, an important one, is that all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, note that it's the women who come to the tomb first. They're the first witnesses to the empty tomb and the resurrected Lord. And yet in the ancient world, women held low social status. They wouldn't have been able to offer testimony in a court of law. That They wouldn't have been trusted to offer an account for such an event. But that this feature of the story is so prominent, it means that it must have happened this way. They couldn't deny it. The women were the first witnesses. And secondly, if the disciples were going to dream this up, why would they highlight the doubts of its earliest leaders? We didn't read it, but in verse 25 of chapter 20, we remember the familiar refrain of Thomas, doubting Thomas. Unless I see the nails imprints in his hands. Unless I see the nail imprints, unless I touch them, unless I place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Why would the gospel writers purposely put themselves in such a bad life if they were the ones dreaming it up, if it were just part of their imagination? And think about this, why would they willingly march to their deaths for a dreamed-up vision? Why would they suffer persecution? Why would they suffer martyrdom? Why would they uh, suffer ostracization? Why would they be put away if they knew it was something that was untrue? Why would the Apostle Paul, who had formerly been Saul the persecutor, become the, the most vocal proponent for Christianity in the ancient world? Why would that happen if it were not true? Why would they do that? I simply ask you, would you do that? Would you march to your death for a lie? Would you give yourself to such a fabricated story if it cost you everything? It doesn't make any sense. It only makes sense if it's historically true. This isn't a dreamed-up scenario by the early church. It's certainly not the dreamed-up scenario by the Greeks and the Romans. It must be true. And we could offer one more piece of evidence. How do we explain the spread of Christianity? How do we explain this movement spreading over all of the ancient world? Again, sometimes people will say, well, Christianity has invented the resurrection. There's only one problem with that. It takes Christians. It takes Christians to do that. But following the crucifixion of Christ, what do we see? The movement began to scatter, fragment in despair and brokenness. What accounts for this massive regathering of hope, injection of life, and taking of risk? The only thing that makes sense of that is the resurrection. You see, Christianity, some group, is not the explanation for the resurrection. The resurrection is the explanation for that group. That the resurrection is the explanation for Christianity. The reason why Christianity exists, well, it's not because people dreamed it up. It's because God dreamed it up in the resurrection. He, he made it happen. As He came out of the grave, He came out with hope and life, turning back the tide of darkness. And in this is found the significance of this resurrection, not just historically true, but freighted with massive significance for all of life. You know, it's interesting that John is the first one who begins to grasp 
what is happening. He's the first one who uh, begins to put the pieces together. As Mary had come back to, to the disciples, Peter and John run to the tomb. John being the younger of the two outruns Peter. But when Peter arrives, he's the one who goes into the tomb. And then finally John peers in and he sees the grave clothes. And verse 8 notes, and he saw and believed. It was just at that moment that he saw and believed in the resurrected Lord because they hadn't put the pieces together. They had read the Scriptures. They had heard Jesus speak and still had not looked for the resurrection. But then John believes. John is the first to believe, but he's not the first to see. Mary. Mary Magdalene is the first to see the risen Lord. And interestingly, John uses her, he focuses on her, this one whom Jesus had cast out seven demons, this prominent woman in the ministry of Christ. John uses her to focus our attention on what is the significance of the resurrection. And Mary's there after John and Peter leave the tomb. She's still there, maybe standing beside the tomb, weeping. She finally walks into the tomb, and there she's greeted by these angelic messengers. And she's asking them, have you taken the body? And then she comes forth um, from uh, the tomb, and there she bumps into who? Jesus. Jesus asks her, why are you weeping? And she's supposing him to be the gardener, John tells us. She asks him, have you taken the body? Where have you laid him? I will go take care of him. But then she, he speaks her name. You know, it's interesting that, first of all, she supposes him to be the gardener. The entire New Testament picks up this theme that Jesus is the second Adam, the one who had originally been placed in the Garden of Eden. And there Adam had been called to steward all of the wonder and joy and uh, beauty of this garden. But of course the Bible tells us that Adam failed in his duties. Christ as a second Adam has succeeded where um, Adam failed. And it isn't interesting that um, Mary supposes him to be the gardener because in one sense he is a holy gardener. He's come to steward over a new creation. He's called to cultivate a new life and bring it to its fruition where every sin will be banished, every um, shadow will be turned away, every form of evil will be suppressed. And, and in fact, the Bible tells us that that's what He's bringing. And, and one day, He will wipe every one of our tears away. He, he will turn back all of the violence and injustice in this world that it will finally be as God intends for it to be. Isn't it interesting that Mary meets the holy gardener? He's coming to do that work where Adam failed. Christ will succeed. You see, the resurrection means that in Christ, a renewal of all of life has begun. You see, with Christ... All of life is being renewed. When Jesus came out of the grave, he, he wasn't a resuscitated, broken body. He was a resurrected, glorious new being. As He is, so we will be. And as He is, so will all of the cosmos 
redeemed and renewed and remade as God intends for it to be. You see, the great significance of the resurrection is that in Christ, God is remaking all of life. What He has begun, He will finish. But in the resurrection, there is also this profound reconciliation of relationship. Because of sin, the Bible tells us we are separated from God. Our sins have put a barrier between us and God. And in the crucifixion, the Bible tells us that Christ has paid the burden or the debt of that sin, putting away those transgressions so that we might be brought near to Him. But the truth of that message is not sealed and delivered until Christ comes forth from the grave. Until He's resurrected to life, the victory of that reconciliation is not secured. The Apostle Paul will say it this way, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. In the resurrection we're reconciled to God. And it's so wonderful the way that reconciliation is impressed upon Mary. How does Mary know that she is with God? It's when God speaks her name, Mary. John notes that he spoke that name to her in the Aramaic. Normally, when Mary Magdalene is referred to in the Gospels, the Greek form is used to aid the reader. But in this particular case, John highlights her Aramaic usage of her name, speaking her family name. And in speaking her name, he knows her and she is known. And isn't that the essence of being reconciled to God? We are with Him, known and loved. In the resurrection, we are brought near to God. As Jesus will had said to His disciples, My sheep hear My voice and I know them and they follow Me. The resurrection secures and validates that what Christ did on the cross is finished and secure. In the resurrection, Christ has put away our sins so that we are no longer under their debt. We are forgiven. In the resurrection, we are no longer estranged and separated from God, but brought into His family, a part of His children. Isn't that what Jesus says to Mary? I go to my God and your God. I go to my Father and your Father. We are in the same family. You are reconciled to God. A grand and glorious renewal of life has begun. But we've also been given a new mission. Look what Jesus says to Mary. Go to my brothers. Tell them the good news. You see, the resurrection not only signals renewal and resurrection, it signals the church's mission to the world. We are those who are to go out into the world and announce this grand message. And again, isn't it interesting that God isn't calling Christians to coerce the world into some sort of code of behavior that will somehow merit God's affection? That the vision of Christianity is not to coerce people to do things that they don't want to do, But the mission of Christianity is to announce what God has done in Christ. 
It's to announce this good news. This reconciliation that God has secured in Christ. The reason why is because when we believe in Christ, we enter into that victory, don't we? When we believe in Christ, we enter into that forgiveness. We receive that adoption. We begin that renewal. That we, by faith, are resurrected to new life ourselves. And that's why we're to go out into the world and announce that message. That message also has profound significance for how God wants to heal the deepest divides within humanity. This isn't just about our reconciliation to God, but ultimately our reconciliation to brother and sister, man and man, sister and sister. We're living in a world that seems to be escalating in its violence. We see violence in Eastern Europe, in the Middle East, in Africa, in Mexico. And we wonder what's going to stop it. How will it stop? But some of us think as we pick up the implements of war, we, we can stop it. But we can't ever crucify our neighbor enough to secure a safe place for ourselves. We will never bring the peace that we long for at the edge of our swords. It will not happen. We can never crucify our neighbor enough to make a safe place for ourselves. The crucifixion and resurrection that we need to make a safe world has already happened. And our calling is to participate with Him in that suffering and announce the good news of that resurrection. Not not just to each other, but even to our enemies. Think about the implications of that as we see the Middle East and North Africa torn asunder by the Muslim-Christian conflict. How are we going to convince a Muslim world that hates Christians to stop killing Christians? This isn't to say that we shouldn't defend life, but it is to say that we will not convince those who hate to love with our weapons of war. Think about those who disagree with the sexual norms found in the Bible for human flourishing. People will not be converted to the language of hate and discrimination. We will not convince others by pointing the finger and shouting condemnation. It will not happen. Think about the deep racial divides that afflict our nation. We will not bring the healing and reconciliation between races through legislation and acts of power. It will come through acts of service and sacrifice, confident in the victory that has come in Christ, the new man who's bringing a new humanity among all the races to this world. You see, that's the mission Christ has given to us. A mission that's rooted in this new life that's begun in Christ and the reconciliation that He has secured. On that Easter morning when the disciples woke up, they awoke to greet just one more day over which sin and death reigned. Just one more day of brokenness. Mary and the disciples, they they went to the tomb to mourn a hope that they thought had come but was ultimately lost. But when they came to the tomb, they were greeted with a risen Christ and they discovered in this risen Christ that a new day had actually risen with them. 
And in fact, an entire new world. And a new reconciliation had been given in Him. And they had been given a new vision, a new mission, a new purpose for life. And they could never go back. The ships were burned. They could never go back and live like yesterday. And friend, that's our calling as well. Because this day came, there is never another day that will be the same. In your reflections, there's a poem by George Herbert as he reflects on Easter. Let me read it for us. I got me flowers to straw thy way. I got me boughs off many a tree. But thou wast up by break of day and brought thy sweets along with thee. The sun arising in the east, though he give light and the east perfume, if they should offer to contest with thy arising, they presume. Can there be any day but this, though many suns to shine endeavor? We count three hundred, but we miss. There is but one, and that one ever. That's the resurrected Son. That one gives light forever. From this day forward, a new life has begun. A new reconciliation has been secured. And we have been given a new mission in this world. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank You that You are the resurrected King. Would You reign over us with Your mercy and grace? the life that You have brought with Yourself in the resurrection, would You fill us and breathe upon us with that life of the Spirit that we might fulfill Your mission in this world. Holy God, bring Christ to us and fill us with His Spirit. For it is in His name that we pray. Amen.